John Verbeke, it's great to be speaking with you today. Ronnie, it's a great pleasure to be here with you. So you have a 50-part lecture series on YouTube called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And I'm really looking forward to diving into this whole topic today because I think most people don't have a very good vocabulary for meaning. Most Mm. people are just experiencing a lack of it these days without really being able to zero in on the problem. So before we get into the cause of the meaning crisis that you've mapped out so well, Can you tell us what are the symptoms of the meaning crisis that we're seeing today? Why is this such a serious issue? Yeah, so there's lots of symptoms. This is something that Christopher Mastipietro and I published on. So you can see sort of three broad types of symptoms. There's what you might call very reactive symptoms, and these tend to be maladaptive. And then there's sort of more middling ones, mixed ones, and then there's more responsible symptoms that can have a more adaptive response within them. So if we take a look at the negative ones, some of the symptoms are increased suicide, even in areas of affluence, especially among young people, and that the age of suicide is actually dropping. So we're seeing a significant increase in child suicide. There's good work showing that this can happen without the person falling into sort of clinical depression. It's just a direct response to the meaninglessness itself. You then have, of course, the overlapping with that, you have the rise of the mental health crisis, anxiety, depressive disorders, et cetera, on the increase. You have a loneliness epidemic that is growing. You have attendant upon that, people increasingly feeling alienated and feeling that their world is sort of filled with noxious information or bullshit. And I mean that in the technical sense of the word, the way Frankfurt uses it. Right. We're going to get into that one. And so you also see what's called the virtual exodus, people stating an explicit preference for being in the virtual world, video games and social media. And we could talk about why that's the case. So that's a lot of the very negative symptoms that you see. And then you move to things that are still negative, but there's a little bit more sense to them. But you see, you know, the fact that our political discourse is simultaneously assuming a religious nature for us, but most people feel politically disenfranchised and disillusioned about the political process, which seems incapable of solving problems or making decisions. So you see this weird tension of increased sort of symbolic value attached to our political positions and our political ideologies, but in a decreased sense of the moral worth and efficaciousness of our political structures. And then you can move into things where people are doing sort of pseudo-religious stuff. So people will say, like the nuns, this is the N-O-N-E-S's. This is the one of the fastest growing demographics in the world. These are people who have no official religious status, but they're not they're not sort of atheists. They're spiritual, but not religious, as they frequently put it. And that's a very problematic thing to say. But what it means is they find they're looking for something, but they're finding the traditional religions non-relevant, non-viable for them, but they will nevertheless often engage in religious behavior without realizing it. They'll go to Comic-Con and dress up as one of the Avengers and spend the whole day listening to people and getting people to sign their pictures, And right? It's very much religious behavior. Or you have these things, phones, which people say, (laughs) I'm not religious, and you say, really, I notice that you're spending a lot of attention, 
and binding your identity to this. And if I were to remove it from it, I can measure how much anxiety you'll suffer. And you treat this as an oracle that gives you all the information and it's ubiquitous. It's very much like a god for you. You don't actually know. Most people have no idea how it functions. And so uh, I'm not religious. Yeah, you are. You are. And so there's a lot of displaced religious behavior. And then you have the more sort of purely, although there's, I have criticisms of them, positive responses. You have the mindfulness revolution. You have the revival of stoicism. You have the, you know, the increasing interest in Buddhism. You have all kinds of communities of practices springing up around the world. And I'm talking to many of them in which people are cultivating ecologies of practices in order to try and respond to the meaning crisis. When you put all of that together, the best unified explanation for it is two, two parts. Meaning is really important to us, and meaning is somehow under threat to us right now. That's the meaning crisis. Right. That is beautifully said. And I think, you know, in our modern world today, we don't realize how many things are going wrong in terms of, you know, the suicide levels rising, depression rising, and anxiety. And as you said, in populations where you wouldn't think that yeah. these things were happening, right? We think in our modern materialistic world that money, fame, you know, and pleasure is what we should be looking for. And yeah. really people who, as you said, in affluent populations are lacking meaning. And yeah. it's not pleasure and money isn't exactly getting them through life in a meaningful way. And these you know, pockets, these little societies that are popping up of people yeah. who are trying to answer this meaning crisis and all sorts of, you know, when you mentioned the term religious, right, that politics has become religious because we have this religious instinct within us. And yes. the fact that religion is gone doesn't mean that the religious instinct is gone, right? And that's kind of this meaning instinct as well, kind of yes. married yeah. into one another. Yes. So, so we're going to break all of that apart. Now, I have a big question for you, and there's no better person to ask. Cognitively speaking, how would you define meaning? So, I mean, there's the when I'm talking about as a cognitive scientist, there's two ways I'm talking about it. One is a very technical sense of like what the meaning of a proposition is or the meaning of a sentence. But what we're talking about here is we're using that sense of the meaning of a sentence as a metaphor for something. So think about how the pieces of a sentence, the words, cohere together, and then they make sense to you, and then they connect you to the world in a way so you can evaluate the world and solve problems in the world. And what we're saying when we're talking about meaning in life is there's something about our life. Our life should cohere together, make sense to us, and fit us to the world in a way that is like affording of our agency, our ability to solve problems. So one way of then reducing all of that is to say what we're talking about when we're talking about meaning in life is a felt sense of efficacious connection to ourselves, to other people, and to the world. That deep sense of connectedness. Okay. Okay. And so we've spoken about the symptoms of this meaning crisis and what happens when we don't have it. Now, how did we get here? And that's a big question. And you know, you have a 50, 50 lecture series <laughs> on that topic. But if you could give us an overview, just in terms of from, you know, you mapped it out so well from ancient Greece up until today, what happened around the scientific revolution and the enlightenment 
and you know, throughout this evolution of ideas and philosophical worldviews that left us empty of meaning. That's a complex question. As you say, I take a lot of episodes to try and discuss it. But I would start at around the 14th century, a little bit before the scientific revolution, just, just before the Renaissance and, and comes in. And there's a bunch of changes that start happening that cause us to lose touch with that machinery of meaning making that I was talking about. One is a change in our worldview. We basically started to abandon Platonic, Neoplatonic Christian framework in which relationship was the key way in which we understood reality, especially the relation of participation. We can talk about that a little bit later. And we started instead to move into a view in which we saw reality as made up of ultimately separate individual things. And we then made this move where we said all the patterns we think are in the world are actually in our mind. They aren't there in reality. And so what happened at the same time is we started reading differently, and we started reading not in order to be transformed, like the way people used to read philosophy or the Bible. We started to read to be informed. Because the patterns aren't in the world, the only patterns are the patterns between the propositions in my mind. And that's going to lead right to Descartes and other things. I won't get into the technicalities, but what happens is we get very much isolated inside our minds and we get disconnected in a radical way. And as we focus more and more on this purely propositional way of knowing, we lose all the embodied ways of knowing that connected us to ourselves, our bodies, each other in the world. And so we get locked into propositions and then we increasingly get locked into an adversarial kind of relationship with other people. So instead of a relationship of what's called opponent processing, which is modeled in our very biology, where you have two things that are correcting each other, constantly correcting each other, your attention is doing it right now. Part of your attention wants to wander out, part of it wants to focus in, and they're pulling and pushing on each other so that your attention is constantly evolving. That's opponent processing. And the opponent processing model gave way more and more to an adversarial model, a courtroom model, where the point of discussion is debate, and the point of debate is to destroy one side rather than the other. So we lost the sense of opponent processing. We got into this adversarial processing locked inside of our heads, locked inside of our propositions, and we get radically disconnected from the world, other people, ourselves. And concomitant with that, what happens is we start to separate the university from the monastery, Protestant Reformation, Scientific Revolution, which means the knowledge processes and practices get separated from the wisdom practice. And then this is the third dimension. So two dimensions so far, propositional tyranny, adversarial processing. Think about how that's being played on in our politics right now. It's all about our, our propositions and battling between our propositions. And then the third is, right, this important feature. The very things that are those meaning-making machines, machinery in us, are also things that make us prone to self-deception. And so across time and across cultures, groups of people have created ecologies of practices for ameliorating that self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior 
and affording the sense of fittedness, connectedness, well-fittedness, well-connectedness to themselves, to each other, and the world. That's wisdom. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom isn't so much about your propositions or your skills. It's more like the significance of them, how they fit, how they apply, or maybe they don't apply. And as we lost our contact with wisdom institutions and wisdom practices, right, we lost machinery, right? We lost practices for dealing with self-deception and self-destructive behavior. But wisdom isn't optional. You can't not practice it. So here's the three things. We're suffering a wisdom famine. We're locked into adversarial processing, and we're suffering from a propositional tyranny. And if you want to see clear evidence for that, turn on your television. Turn on your television, and you'll see all of those three dimensions just on fire and setting the world on fire. That's the meaning crisis. Absolutely. And I think today, you know, we're kind of locked into this modern world where we don't really see a way forward, right? Because a lot of things, a lot of institutions that were helping us, you know, balance these different ways of knowing, you know, knowledge and wisdom and these different ways of being with ourselves, being with others, these embodied practices, all of these different things that we had in place to balance us, you know, to balance what it is to be human and to make sure that we don't deceive ourselves. They're gone from the world. And, you know, we've essentially thrown the baby out with the bathwater. So my question is, in these, you know, religious practices that we used to have, a lot of people today, you know, they think of Nietzsche and the death of God, and they think that's a celebration. And I heard Alain de Botton say that, you know, during the Enlightenment and the secularization of society, we thought that culture would replace religion. And as you said, the university and the monastery have split completely. And, you know, after all of that, Jung also kind of looked at that and said, we can't really create our own values, right? There's, we're not masters in our own house. And there's inherent features of being human, these core values that we have within us, that these archetypes, you know, religion was communicating with, right? Religion, in a sense, was also this crystallization of all that is meaningful to the human organism. So basically, what I'm asking is, what do we do today? Because we can't go back to the way things were, right? So what is the evolution forward here? So first of all, what you said was very eloquent and well said. So thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, I say to people, put on my tombstone, neither nostalgia nor utopia. We can't go back. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we can't go back. And, and that's part of our problem. A lot of the language and the conceptual grammar and vocabulary we use to talk about spirituality is bound up to axial age religion and then twisted through the enlightenment. And that axial age way of thinking about things, the two worlds, Right. This is Nietzsche's critique. I mean, this is Nietzsche's critique in a nutshell. Nietzsche's critique said we were given this two world mythology where the world we're in is the world of self deception and illusion. And we need to self transcend in order to get to the real world, the two, and that's, you know, nirvana or heaven. And so what happens is, right, this world, the world of our phenomenological experience, the world we're embodied and embedded in only has an instrumental value in getting us to the real world. Now, what the Axial Age mythology was trying to do was make us aware of our deep 
proclivity for self-deception and to try to uh, listen to the words, to awaken us, to enlighten us, right? To wake us up. And so there's deep truth and value in that. But the way that was homed, the structure and language that people were given is this two-world mythology. And as that two-world mythology loses plausibility, as it loses relevance for us, this is Nietzsche's critique, what's left is this world And this world seems empty to us because we've been taught for centuries that it only has an instrumental value. And so Nietzsche, when Nietzsche proclaims the death of God, he's not proclaiming it to believers. He goes into the marketplace, the madman, and he's talking to the atheists because he says, you do not know what you have done. You have taken a sponge and wiped away the sky. We are now forever falling. How can we become worthy of this? So people don't really understand what often what Nietzsche meant by the death. He didn't mean it like, yay. I mean, in one sense he does, but in another sense he said, there was something deep going on here and you've lost it. So another way of talking about the meaning crisis is we can't go back. We can't turn the clock back. We can't unlearn everything that has got us in this place. That's the reason for many people why the traditional religions are non-viable, because that whole two worlds mythology seems distant and irrelevant to the way they're embedded in their bodies in the world and surrounded by hyper technology. But we also got to be careful. We can't adopt utopia. We can't adopt the view that we can just impose, like you said, meaning on the world. A good analogy for meaning, and it's a profound analogy, is like philia, friendship, or even love. You can't come up to someone and say, I'm going to make you my friend. It doesn't work that way. And you can't take the same attitude towards the world. This is, to my mind, one of the great mistakes of certain versions of romanticism, which like the world is a blank canvas and I just, I'm just going to express my meaning, express, press onto it, my meaning. That's not how meaning works. Meaning is a fittedness. It's think about the analogy of a biological adaptation. A shark, like a great white shark, is it fit? Well, it depends. If you put it in the ocean, it fits the ocean really well. If you put it in the Sahara Desert, it dies, right? Adaptivity is a real relation between you, an organism, and the world. Friendship is a real relation co-created by you and some other being. Meaning is the same way. It has to be co-created by you and the world together. And so you need, you can't just propose a utopia. You need something in which You need an ecology of practices that reduces self-deception, affords connectedness, and in which that meaning can take shape with a life of its own. Because if it doesn't have a life of its own, it won't give you any life. Amazing. Before we zero in on this concept of self-deception, or more correctly, before we zero in on the practices that help us overcome our self-deception, what is the difference between lying to ourselves and bullshitting ourselves. Right. So many people, you know, Melee, Sartre, a lot, from many different philosophical traditions, converge on the idea that we can't really lie to ourselves because lying depends on a differential of belief. So when I lie to you, right, I believe something other than what I'm saying to you, and I'm trying to cause the opposite belief in you from the one I have. That's how lying works. And lying... When I lie to you, I'm depending on your commitment to the truth, that the, knowing the truth cha- or at least believing something to be true will change your behavior. Now, 
You can't do that to yourself because you can't, belief isn't something you can do to yourself. It's not something you have voluntary control over. I'll show you right now. Let's do it. Pick a belief you'd <laughs> like to have. I'd like to have the belief that everybody loves me. Okay, do it. Believe it. Uh, uh, I can't. I can imagine it. I can wish for it. I can desire it, but I can't believe it. That's not how belief works. So you can't really lie to yourself because if you believe P, you can't really, well, I'll just start not believing P. It doesn't work that way. What you can do is something different. And this is Frankfurt's notion of bullshit, sort of given a Vervakian spin, Rich. The bullshitter is not lying to you. The liar depends on you, you changing your behavior because of your concern for the truth. The bullshitter is trying to get you to forget your concern for the truth and just be caught up in how salient things are, how much they catch your intention, how much they arouse you, how much they motivate you. So think, you know, of a standard speech by a politician. Most people know that all the things they are saying aren't really true. Or take a standard example, television commercial. You turn on a television commercial and here's a shampoo commercial and this woman is using shampoo and it's a beautiful sunny day and the wind is blowing through her hair and everybody is smiling at her and she feels wonderful about herself. Do you really believe that changing your shampoo will do that for you? Of course you don't. But the setup is you're not concerned about the truth. You're sort of distracted from the question about whether or not it's true. And it's just, oh, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that salient? Isn't that wonderful? And so you buy the product. So what you're doing in bullshitting is you're getting people's like attachment to salience separated from their concern from the truth. Normally they go together, but you separate them in bullshit. And then what you do is you motivate people just in terms of how catchy the idea is, how salient, how much it stands out, grabs their attention and arouses their metabolism. Now, the thing about you and I is we can manipulate salience in a way we can't manipulate belief. Because while salience grabs our attention, if I slap my hands together, that grabs your attention. Attention can also cause things to be more salient. So if I say to you right now, your right little toe on your right foot, a moment ago, you weren't even aware of it, and now you're aware of it. So attention can make things salient. And when things are, are salient, that grabs our attention. And then we pay more attention to them. That makes them more salient. That grabs our attention. And we get circled like this. We don't start out believing something that we know isn't true. We start paying more and more attention to the information that would make it seem to be true. And we start more and more ignoring the information that could challenge whether or not it's true. And then we come to believe it. So first, we fall into this vicious cycle of attention and salience, and once we're locked in, then our beliefs are changed. We bullshit ourselves. Interesting. It's almost as if this, this modern world of so much overflow of information, this yeah. noise, really, is constantly us bullshitting ourselves. Because yes. there's so many things that are salient right? And that they're not meaningful. They're not true, but yes. it's so hard to discern. And I think this is compounded by the fact that in our modern world, you know, with the deconstruction of a lot of traditional institutions and social norms, where we're lacking clear social scripts, 
Yes. You know, everything is up for question. So we need to redefine everything. The classic gender roles are up for question and gender itself is up for question. Yes. And people are getting married later and, you know, so marriage is being questioned. So we're constantly having to exercise our ability to discern, you know, from right and wrong. We're constantly required to basically write the scripts of our own lives because, you know, we have all this freedom today. And on the one hand, that's wonderful. You know, we can live our lives the way we want to, but there's a burden that comes with this freedom, right? We do have to navigate our own lives and make sense of things. And that's really this idea of the bigger picture and how in today's world with today's freedom, we have to stay focused on the bigger picture of our life or else we can get lost in the noise. So why is it that with all of this freedom, we, how can we really, you know, as modern individuals navigate through this noise and make sense of our lives for ourselves? Because a lot of things we really do need to define yeah. individually. So first of all, I want to note something in what you said. Notice how like the language you're talking about, discernment, insight, seeing through illusion and into reality, cutting through the bullshit, right? Well, that's wisdom. So right. paradoxically, while we are right. being so starved for it, We've never had such a great need for it. And this is part of the intensity we're feeling. And like I said, people are if people aren't given a place to cultivate real wisdom, they will cultivate all kinds of ersatz surrogates in its place. That vacuum will not be left open. It's like I said, it is non-optional to you, right? You have to deal with self-deception. You have to deal with bullshit. You have to deal with the fact that more and more people are trying to bullshit you. In the book that I wrote with Christopher Master Pietro and Philip Misovic about the zombies as a, as a symbol for the meaning crisis, well, one of the things we showed is just how the, I, the sense of bullshit has been spiking. People are more and more, if you ask them, there's just more and more bullshit. And you were just saying it a few minutes ago. Right. And yet we're less and less being guided. And here's part of the problem. And I want to zero in before I answer your question fully on an important point, which is this notion of freedom. Because in one sense, we're, we're very free. And in another sense, of course, we're not. And this is something that Han is talking about in a lot of his work, H-A-N. He's talking about how, right, the freedom is often being manipulated by bullshit so that we are entering a culture of continual self-exploitation. And so we also, right, think of our, our culture as a burnout society in which people get burnt out. See, freedom, you give people sort of the container of freedom and then enculturate them and bullshit them so that they exploit themselves as much as possible. And one of the things that COVID did was sort of made people aware of how much they were burning out because of this self-exploitation. And the reason, one of the things we need to do in order to break hold, break free from that, that structure and has a hold on us, is that we need to reconsider freedom. And I know this is going to sound, what? Well, we have a modern view of freedom in which we, we view freedom as an inherent good, something that's intrinsically good. The problem with that is, uh, right, the ancient world didn't view freedom quite that way. So think about this. Do you really want absolute freedom, which is a kind of arbitrariness with respect to the world? I bet you don't. 
Because what I actually want, I'll speak for myself, but see if this resonates with you. I want my thoughts as determined by the truth as much as possible. I don't want them to be arbitrary. I want them to be fitted as much and responsible as much to reality as they can be. I want my thoughts to be determined by truth. I want my actions to be determined by goodness. I want my sensibility to be determined by beauty. I think we need to go back and think of freedom more as an instrumental good, which is mean, mean, like, what are you free from? And what are you free to do? Oh, well, I, what do you really want to be free from? Do you want to be free from not having unlimited choice about what kind of soda pop you should drink or shampoo you should use or TV show you should watch? Or do you want to be free from self-deception and self-destruction, from self-exploitation? And what do you want to be free to do? I want to be free to be captured by the true, the good, and the beautiful. I think, first of all, before we talk about more specific things we need to do, we need this fundamental reorientation. Right. I very much agree with this line of thinking. We, you know, not only freedom, but we think of, you know, progress and change as these inherent things. And we don't discern, you know, we don't look at the fact that there comes a cost with and everything, right? And as you were saying, you know, what is beautiful to me, what is meaningful to me, what is true, there's a discrimination there. There's a yes and a no. There's not everything is up for question, right? There's That's setting right. boundaries. Yes. It's saying certain things are wrong and certain things are right. And in this modern world where everything is up for question, and, you know, really this postmodern world where it's almost like we've said that, you know, truth is relative. You know, you, you can make it what you want it to be. You can live your life however you want. There is no right way. Yes. And the question is, collectively or individually, how, how do we navigate through that and evolve and find a way to live that doesn't leave us in this limbo of postmodernism? So that's, I think, the question and if you turn back to Nietzsche, you find that, and he's the godfather of postmodernism, right? You see that he's struggling with two things that are ultimately religious, but he doesn't want to really articulate them as. One is his notion of the ubermensch, right? The superman, right? And man is something to, uh, you know, Zarathustra, I teach you the superman. Man is something to be overcome. Man, man is merely a bridge between the ape and the superman. So he he gives us this model of, of transcendence. And instead of the God-man of Christianity, we get the man-god of the Ubermensch, right? He, he's still looking for, he realizes that no matter what, right, what he's deconstructed, the need for self-transcendence is still there. And then he proposes the eternal return of the same, which is drawn right out of ancient Greek philosophy, and this idea of being able to affirm your life Right. So it's a, it's a fundamental connectedness and love of reality for its own sake. These are hallmarks of the cultivation of wisdom. Wisdom is this, uh, what I'm going to say next is very influenced by John Rustin, all right? This idea that wisdom is a maturation term, right? So what, what we're talking about wisdom, we're talking, this is in the ancient world, as the child is to the adult, the adult is to the sage. Just as you are more mature than a child, a sage is more mature than an average adult male. And so the question is, what is at the core of maturation? Well, the core of maturation is to face reality. And, and, 
and notice the word face. It's but it's the face reality. And so what you can ask is, what are the practices we need that will allow us to turn and face reality and self-transcend so that we mature as we're doing this? And so here's what I propose. I propose this is what we need. What we need is not a single practice or a single therapy. Your cognition, the meaning-making machinery in you is so multi-leveled and so dynamically complex. This is what I study as a cognitive scientist, that it is so capable of evolving itself and reshaping itself. You're doing it right now, moment to moment, in what you're finding relevant, what you're finding salient, how you're connecting things together, right? You can step back and reflect on yourself more powerfully than any other organism on the planet, right? So that machinery is so complex that you cannot mature it and turn it towards what's real by a single practice. Every practice has its strengths and its weaknesses. So what you need are you need, you need to put together practices that are an opponent processing, like we talked about earlier, that have checks and balances. You need a complex ecology of practices woven together that way that can deal with the complex nature of your cognition and intervene in it in many different places, in many different ways, at the same time, in a highly coordinated fashion. So you need an ecology of practices, not just a single thing you do. Now, ecologies of practices, because they're complex like that, they need to be properly honed. You can't really properly do them on your own. I get it. Everybody starts out as an autodidact, but you shouldn't try and stay an autodidact. There's increasing evidence that we do much better at self-correcting and self-transcending when we do opponent processing, not adversarial, opponent processing with each right. other, right? And so you need ecologies of practices that are structured not only at the individual level, but at the communal level. And then that has to be homed in a worldview that gives them the right grammar, the right concepts, the right kind of vocabulary and way of putting that together so that that ecology of practices, both individual and communal, can be properly updated and vetted and in constant communication with the best science of our time. Now, the things that used to do that were religions. That's what religions did, to my mind. We can't just go back and we can't just make a political version of it like we've tried in the 20th century and we drenched the world in blood. We said, you know what we can do? We can replace religion with a political structure and an ideological structure and adversarial processing and a will to power and we drenched the world in blood. Neither nostalgia nor utopia. We need a religion that's not a religion. We need an ecology of practices at the individual and communal level that is properly honed within a worldview that helps us make sense of it without falling into the obsolete axial age way of thinking and affording us to stay in a right relationship to both the natural world and the social world and the way they are both, our understanding of both is shaped by science. That is what I'm proposing we need. Okay, so these ecology of practices, one of them is embodied practices, right? I know that you practice Tai Chi, you know, things like yoga, perhaps. What do these practices give us? Okay, so that 
that's really, really at the forefront of where my work is right now. Let's go back to when I said we got locked into just propositional knowing. Let's briefly talk about other kinds of knowing. So propositional knowing is knowing that, and then you put in a proposition, that cats are mammals. And you have semantic memory for that. You have a memory for facts, like is a cat a mammal? Is two plus two equal five? You have semantic memory for propositional knowing. But notice you have a very different kind of knowing. You have a knowing how. You know how to do something. And this does not result in beliefs. It results in skills. You know how to swim. You know how to catch a baseball. You know how to kiss someone, right? And the memory for this is very different from your memory for facts. This is your memory. People call it muscle memory. There's no memory in your muscle, but muscles. But nevertheless, what they're trying to point at, this is a different kind of memory. This is remembering how to do something. And it's very distinct from your semantic memory. These are your skills. And skills aren't true or false. They fit or they don't fit the world. They're powerful or inept. They're clumsy or graceful. They're appropriate or not. These patterns of being, really, physically, and does it fit the environment in a sense? Yes, and that's your sensory motor loop. Now, those skills depend on that sensory motor loop functioning. Okay, so what's your sensory motor loop? As I'm sensing, I'm moving, and you say, no, I'm being still. Even when you're still, you're moving your attention around, your eyes are saccading. So you're sensing as you're moving, and you're moving as you're sensing, and it's this loop with the world. And your skills are how you shape that sensory motor loop. But what you need in order to shape it in order to apply or acquire your skills is you need an awareness of that sensory motor loop. That's your perspectival knowing. That's your knowing what you're doing it right now. This is knowing what it is like to be in your state of mind here now. What's and we use this word rightly. What is your perspective? What is standing out for you? What is backgrounded for you? What role are you sort of taking in here? How do you how are you shaping that sensory motor loop. What is your salience landscaping? And that doesn't give you beliefs or skills. It gives you a sense of presence. We know this from work in virtual reality games. What makes a game feel real is that sense of presence, that sense of being within the perspective, a here nowness, fittedness in my sensory motor looping with the world. And we, we use the term from painting, right? A perspective, something that Nietzsche emphasize. So there's your perspectival knowing. Your perspectival knowing, of course, is how you're deeply embodied and embedded in your situation. It's your situational awareness, your sense of presence. Like, why are you not swimming right now? Well, because it doesn't, that skill doesn't apply here. You have a sense of the here nowness that is telling you which skills to apply, how to shape your skills, and which skills you may need to acquire. Now, deeper than the perspectival is the participatory knowing. This is the one that Dan Chiappe and I are doing quite a bit of work on. We've published some papers that concern this. I just gave an invited talk at Cambridge about this. Brilliant. So the perspectival knowing is, and remember, you you don't need to know that you know in order to know. This is a problem. There's lots of things you know without knowing that you know them. So just keep that in mind. So what's your participatory knowing? The participatory knowing is how reality, evolution, culture, technology, and your current cognition and consciousness are co-shaping your environment and you so you fit together in what Chris and Philip and I called an agent arena relationship. So what identity am I assuming? 
what identities are am I assigning, and what affordances for action are opened up. So let me give you an example. Okay, so I have a bottle of water here, right? Now, because I and the bottle and the environment are all being co-shaped by gravity, my actions with respect to the bottle can work because of how gravity and space and time and matter and energy are shaping me, the electromagnetic forces in my hand, the electromagnetic forces in the bottle. So there's a co-shaping there. Now, also, evolution made me bipedal, so this thing is graspable, and evolution right, also caused the emergence of civilization that made artifacts, which gets to culture. Culture has made this thing, the bottle, and it has shaped me and taught me how to drink from bottles, right? And now, because of my current situation, which I'm thirsty, this is salient to me. And so it's standing out to me. It's being shaped to me as something I want, and I'm being directed towards it as somebody that's thirsty. So at all these levels of the physics and the biology and the culture and the technology and my ongoing cognition and consciousness, the world and I are being shaped together. Like This is niche construction. I'm shaping the environment, it's shaping me, and we are both being co-shaped together to fit together. These are all the affordances. So that bottle, given everything I just said, that bottle is graspable by me. Now, the graspability isn't in my hand. I can't grasp the moon or Africa. The graspability is in the bottle because many things can't grasp it. An ant, right? A great white shark, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe it could bite on it or something. But right, the graspability is a real relation between me and it. And uh, for me, the most re- important real relation in cognition is relevance realization. So right. all all of this, all of these aff- relevance is the affordance for cognition. All these affordances that emerge for us. This is our participatory knowing. We don't make them, like the romantics, or at least some of the romantics said. We don't just express them or will them. We don't receive them like the empiricists said, right? They are co-created. We participate. The world and me or I participate in the co-creation of these affordances. That's our participatory knowing. Now, everything below the propositional, the procedural, the perspectival, and the participatory, first, they're all deeply interrelated. They all mutually afford and depend on each other. All of that is where most of the meaning is being made. And so if you do not have embodied practices that are tapping into all of this non-propositional knowing, you are not activating and educating the dimensions of your cognition that are most responsible for wisdom and meaning. And that, of course, is part of the downside of propositional tyranny. We think it's enough to change people's beliefs. That's not enough. And so embodied practices tap into the way in which your cognition is procedural, perspectival, and participatory. And that is where most of the meaning is being made. Brilliant. Let me ask you this. People who are aware of this meaning crisis and are trying to develop practices in their lives to ameliorate the meaning crisis, Where do you think a lot of people go wrong? What do they miss, right? You know, maybe it's mindfulness, maybe it's meditation, maybe it's yoga, but where are they falling, right? And not having the complete picture and the full ecology of practices in their lives. What are you seeing? Excellent questions. In fact, all your questions have been really excellent. I'm very impressed, Ronnie. Oh, thank you. 
<laughs> so I think it was David Hume who famously said, we don't sort of fall into evil. I'm not saying people are evil, but I'm just using this as a, as a setup. We don't fall into evil because we choose evil. We choose a lesser good over a greater good. That is the, one of the most fundamental ways in which we can bullshit ourselves. We can find a lesser good more salient than a greater good and thereby deceive ourselves and actually rob ourselves of an abundant kind of life. So how does that happen with the person doing yoga or the person doing mindfulness? Well, typically what happens is people adopt an attitude of a panacea practice. Here's the one practice that will, will do it all. There's just formal proofs, by the way, that that can't work. That's not the case. You can't get everything out of one practice. Let's even take a mindfulness practice. There's two ways in which, I mean, there's even three ways in which mindfulness has been really reduced as it's been brought into North American culture and commodified. And so there's genuine and legitimate critiques around mindfulness, calling it MIC mindfulness. I published a critique of even the, the current scientific understanding of mindfulness within Western psychology with Leo Ferraro in 2016, reformulating the mindfulness construct. Look, first, most mindfulness practices were not practiced in isolation. Take yoga or take seated meditation, vipassana. It's a Buddhist practice. Meditation was always like, think about the Eightfold Path. First of all, there's right mindfulness, which means there is wrong mindfulness. There's a wrong way of practicing mindfulness. So think, there's wrong mindfulness. That tells you right away. Eightfold Path. Mindfulness is not a panacea because it can go wrong. Secondly, right? It was right mindfulness, right concentration. There's a playoff there. And if you even look at some of the practices, there is a complementary relationship between different mindfulness practices. Meditative practices are practices like Vipassana or concentration where you step back and you're looking at right your sensations. You're trying to look at the very center or the emergence of your consciousness. You're stepping back and looking in. You're moving towards the center. And that's very good for disconnecting you from inappropriate ways in which you're malfitted to the world. I use the analogy of people taking off their glasses and looking at their glasses. So take my glasses, the lenses, as an analogy for my mental framing. Normally, I'm looking through them. They're transparent to me. I'm not even aware of them. But sometimes I need to step back and look at them to see if there's gunk distorting my vision, making me maladaptive with respect to the world. That's what you're doing in meditation. But imagine if all you did was take your glasses off and look at them. How do you know if you've actually cleaned your glasses? You need to do something else. You need to put them on and see if you see more clearly and more deeply than you did before. These are contemplative practices like you know, contemplating the three marks of existence or doing metta or in the Neoplatonic practices, the, the ascent of the mind to the one. These are contemplative practices. Now, if you only do contemplative practices, how do you know you're not just projecting? So I need to do, do opponent processing between them. I want to take my glasses off and make sure I'm not projecting, that there's not gunk that I'm mistaking, right, that's on my glasses for being a, a feature of the world. So I need to meditate. But then I got to make sure that I see the world more clearly and more deeply. I need to contemplate and see if I can see more deeply. See, even mindfulness needs an opponent processing relation between meditation and contemplation. And you see this within Buddhism. You see these practices being brought together. I was taught Vipassana 
right? A meditative practice, metta contemplative practice. Sometimes we did the three marks. I was also taught Tai Chi Chuan, which is a moving practice. And notice all this opponent processing. A meditative practice and a contemplative practice within mindfulness, doing self-correcting each other. A stillness practice, both meditation and contemplation, in opponent processing with a moving mindfulness practice, like Tai Chi Chuan. All of these are correcting each other. And then think about the Eightfold Path. Those mindfulness practices are put within ethical practices, are put within philosophical, reflective practices. Wherever you look, you need a powerful ecology of practices. So the first thing that people do is think they can, the first mistake is panacea practice. There's one practice Mm -hmm. that will do it all. No. Secondly, autodidactism. Everybody starts as an autodidact, but you can't stay that way. Most of your cognition depends on the opponent processing with other people, a community, people you're in communion with, not just communicating propositions, but in communion with, and they help correct you and you participate in the correction. You also get access to the power of collective intelligence, which is more powerful than just the sum of individual intelligences. And so the second mistake people make is they pursue it individualistically. So they pursue a single practice, panacea practice, and they pursue it individualistically, autodidactism, continual. Again, you start that way, but you cannot end that way or stay that way. Those are the two most pressing mistakes people make. The third one, which is relevant, but right, and is really supplementary to the first two, is people do this without becoming more and more scientifically literate about cognition, about meaning, and they do not empower themselves with how to understand this as carefully and precisely as possible. That's brilliant. I think a lot of people, you know, as you said, I see people picking up a certain practice and it does wonders for them, but it's not the full picture. And they become married to this idea that this is the one way to go. And that also locks you in you know, to a certain worldview. And I want to touch upon this idea of insight, right? And this basically cultivating wisdom and, and, you know, reaching different insights. We get there from framing problems in a different way and how really these practices are also helping us constantly frame problems differently. Yes. Do you have a few yeah. examples around this? But I'd love, I'd love to kind of touch upon this idea of insight and how we can get more insights in our life. So, yeah, you, you put it, again, very, very beautifully. So at the core of our cognition is this core problem, which is there's way too much information. Think about all the ways you, all the things you could pay attention to in your environment. Think about all the things you could think about right now. And you'll say, oh, it's unlimited. That's right. Think about all the information that's in your memory, your long-term memory, and all the different ways you could combine that information. I can take the idea of Albania and the idea of an elephant and think of an Albanian elephant. Where did that come from? <laughs> right? Uh, and so that's vast. And then think about all the different options, uh, sequences of behavior, all the options for action available to you. I could choose right now to stand on my couch. I could do a cartwheel. I could start reciting Dada-esque poetry. I could continue this conversation with you. I could break the conversation to get a drink. All the different things. Now, what's amazing is in a highly coordinated, very complex fashion, you're ignoring 
And I mean that very seriously. You're ignoring most of the options available to you. You're ignoring most of what you can think about. You're ignoring most of your memory. And you're ignoring most of what you're paying attention to. And you're zeroing in on the information that is keeping you well-fitted to the situation at hand, such that you can solve a wide variety of problems in a wide variety of domains with significant creativity and significant reliability. This central ability of relevance realization is the ability that we are finding it very, very hard to give to artificial general intelligence. It is the core, I would argue, of your intelligence. And so that is a kind of fittedness to the world. Now, you pay a price for that. And we use this metaphor of a frame. I put a frame around my cognition, so I'm ignoring most of reality, what's outside that cognition, because if I try to pay attention to everything outside the frame, in those four dimensions I mentioned, I'll crash. I can't, I need the entire history of the universe and a computer the process, with the processing power size beyond anything we have. And I, so I can't do that. So I have to frame things. That is not optional for me. It makes me intelligent. It makes me adaptive. The problem is the frame can make me ignore information that is actually important. Here's a classic example. Now, thankfully, this has been changing because of the advent of phones, because people use their phones to now light dark situations. But this is what people used to do. They used to do the following. They used to go into a dark situation where they knew, they knew there was flammable gas had been dispersed, but it was dark and they would strike a match because they wanted light without remembering an unintended consequence was heat that could ignite the gas. They failed to have an insight. You can do this with people. You can say, okay, what grows from an acorn? Well, an oak. What's the gray stuff that comes off of fire? Smoke. What is it if somebody puts their hands around your throat like this? Oh, that's a choke. Uh, What am I doing with my hand on my arm right now? Oh, that's a stroke. What do you call the white of an egg? Oh, a yolk. No, you don't. You call it the white of an egg, right? So what happened is you were framing this and the rhyming was relevant. And then you take that frame into the question and you go for the rhyme without breaking out of it and realizing, oh, right. Aha. Right. I uh, I shouldn't have done that. That insight, that aha moment is when you realize bullshitted yourself because what happens is you made the wrong thing salient and you didn't question enough framing as you needed to. So insight needs two things. It needs a practice that breaks up an inappropriate frame. That's taking off the glasses, by the way. And it needs a practice that makes a new frame. Your aha moment is that sense of, you. oh, I realized what was wrong with the old frame, and I'm seeing what's right about the new frame. That's aha. And so you need practices that help break up inappropriate frames and create new, more encompassing frames, and that will engender insight. This is how you, you stop. A moment of insight is a moment when you stop bullshitting yourself when you start to see through illusion and into reality. And if you can make those insights not isolated, but if you can make them systematic and systemic so they percolate through all of your cognition and permeate through all your life on a more regular and reliable basis, you'd be a wiser person. And in fact, people know that this kind of 
broad capacity for insight is a feature of wisdom. That's so beautifully said, because I really think that, as you said, what it is to be wise is to know which frame to use in any given moment. And whatever kind of training we have and, uh, you know, whatever we've learned in university, we learn all of these different models of how to look at the world. And they work for some situations and they don't work for others. And this almost flexibility of thought and knowing when to use a certain frame would that, let me, let me ask you this. What is the distinction here between intelligence and wisdom? Uh Right. There's right. What, what, What is relevant? What we realize is relevant is that the intelligence and this flexibility, flexibility of thought and knowing which frame to use is that wisdom. Exactly. How do you make sense of it? You just did it. You okay. did, you did. So intelligence is the way that relevance realization fits you, like you said, but wisdom is being able to deal with the self-deception that emerges in that and being able to switch between frames in an insightful manner. That's exactly right. What you said is exactly right. Brilliant, brilliant. And let's, you know, for, for the audience back home, you know, listening to this today, what do you think someone who's struggling with a meaning crisis, someone who's really deep in it and kind of looking for a way out? A lot of people, as you said, there's all of these maladaptive things that people do to, to scratch out of it. And what do you think is a good starting place for someone who wants to create more meaning in their life? I think the first thing is to get, well, make sure you have a really good framing of the problem. Insight means you've framed the problem the wrong way. And if you try to solve it within the wrong framing, you'll never solve it. That's a fundamental way in which self-deception works. So really learn about the meaning crisis. There's lots of good people out there carefully talking about it, trying to explain it, right? So you can understand the nature of the meaning crisis, the nature of the problem. Then look around, look around for a place that is teaching an ecology of practices, not a panacea practice, an ecology of practices, both still and moving, both individual and collective, communal. Take a look at how people are in that practice. Take a look at, is that ecology of practices? What kind of worldview is it set in? Is it set in a nostalgic worldview? Is it set in a utopic worldview? Then stand away. And look at how whoever's leading, how flexible is the leadership? How participatory is our people in it, right? And then take a look at some of these practices. How well vetted are they by tradition? How well vetted are they by our best good cognitive science? Carefully choose. If you can, find somebody else to join with you in, eco- in this ecology of practices and act as like a buddy system, act as safety checks uh, for each other. There's a lot of these emerging communities. There are a lot of good people talking about the meaning crisis and reflecting on it. There's a whole, uh, Sevilla King calls it this corner of the internet, where people are <laughs> talking about this from various viewpoints, but nevertheless converging and intersecting and doing proper, not adversarial processing, but opponent processing with each other. And there's lots on offer. Be discerning, be careful, try to follow some of the advice 
I've given you in some of the stuff we've talked about. But that is how to do it. Resist. Resist if, as much as you can the temptation to that just by adopting a, poli- a, a certain political or ideological narrative, you will actually satisfy the need for overcoming foolishness, enhancing connectedness, cultivating meaning and wisdom. Like that is the great temptation and you'll constantly be sold that in many different arenas. You'll be told, look, if you'll just adopt this narrative, right, and just go to war for its beliefs, then you will find what you're so hungry for. Try to resist that temptation. Right. I think that's really good advice. And it's a very sober way of looking at things because this temptation, you know, to fill that void of meaning is always there. And if there's any practice, community, ideology that, you know, offers to satisfy that need for meaning, a lot of people dive right in and then they get lost in, in that bullshit. So I think that's a really sober way of looking at things and seeing everything that's available and staying, staying very conscious of ourselves and trying to navigate this world. I have a last question for you, you know, around this idea of framing the problem in a different way. You know, people say that altered states of consciousness, the reason they give us these insights is exactly this, this different framing of reality. What, what are your thoughts and also any warnings, if you have? Yeah, I mean, so psychedelics, and Aiden Lyons right? psychedelic doesn't necessarily mean a substance. It's any mind disclosing. That's what psychedelia means, the disclosure of the mind. Any mind disclosing substance or practice, so you can get into psychedelic states by chanting or drumming or breath work or all kinds of things. So let's just be clear that we're talking about that. First on sort of, I guess, on the the political front, I think prohibiting, well, I'm not talking about children. Children are different. I'm talking about adults. I think prohibiting substances and ecstatic practices from adults, I think that's a lost cause. The human need for self-transcendence is paramount for human beings. And the need for connectedness and a transformation of our procedural, our perspectival, and our participatory knowing Practices that transform our skills, our states of mind, and even our sense of identity so that we can cultivate new virtues, because that's what virtues are. They are a constellation of skills, states of minds, and identities and roles that we can undertake. So we need to transform all the non-propositional kinds of knowing, and we need profound ways of doing that. Now, what psychedelics do is they basically do a massive frame-breaking and they afford the possibility of very new uh, frame making. Now, the problem with that is if you do that on its own, what you're doing is throwing a wrench into your salience landscaping, and you're hoping (laughs) that it will reconfigure in a healthy, wisdom-conducive way. It's very, very possible that it will reconfigure in a bullshit, self-deceptive way. So... While I think we shouldn't prohibit any of these practices or substances to adults, I think we should also create a strong cultural imperative like we do, like our expectation for people to be educated. We should create a very strong cultural expectation and also afford it that people who want to use these substances or these practices are embedded within a sapiential community, a community in which they're being trained the virtues 
all of those things, skills, states of mind, states of consciousness, right? A proper relationship to identity that reduce foolishness and enhance wisdom so that these psychedelic states can be properly appropriated. And we do a disservice, by the way, to people because independent of psychedelic substances and practices, it's estimated that 30 to 40% of the population have anomalous, visionary, and mystical experiences. Another problem with the meaning crisis is they don't know what to do with them. And they can go off in all kinds of self-deceptive rabbit holes and echo chambers, and the social media makes all of this worse. So I think psychedelics should be used the way they're used in indigenous cultures. They're not used recreationally. They're not used autodidactically. They're used within a communal, sapiential framework. Right, this idea of integration. And I think you've, you've laid it out so well that you can't just have the psychedelic, mystical experience and then, you know, you have wisdom. There's a lot of work that comes after that. And with any practice, you know, this is just one tool and you need to have all exactly. these other practices in place. Yeah, exactly. So, so you don't fall... Exactly. So you don't fall into this bullshit cycle, which, you know, as you said, social media, because we have these echo chambers, you can constantly be in a positive feedback loop, confirming your own bullshit narrative. Yes. Right. So I think that's really well put the, you know, you laid out the, how much it can help, but also the dangers and that we shouldn't fool ourselves and that we should be really sober going into these uh, psychedelic experiences as well. Yeah, I mean, that's like I keep saying, wisdom is not optional. You, sh- you should be you should be cultivating <laughs> wisdom so you bring it into your ecology of practices, and so that your ecology of practices is constantly cultivating an increase in wisdom. Absolutely. All right, John, is there anything that you want? You know, if it was one thing that people leave us with today, what would you want them to remember from this conversation? Well, one thing that I actually didn't get to say, which is we're facing what Thomas Bjorkman calls a meta-crisis, an interlocking crisis, environmental crisis, economic crises, political crises, obviously now medical and health crises. They're all interwoven into an ever-complexifying, horrifying mess. And here's the thing. One of the reasons why we're finding so much difficulty responding to meta-crisis is that our framing is trapped in the meaning crisis. So we're, we're, we're starving for meaning. And when you're in a starvation mentality, it really reduces your cognitive flexibility dramatically. So we're not going to address the metacrisis unless we take seriously the meaning crisis. And here's the thing. However we're going to respond to these crises, the meta crises. I think it's very possible it's going to require a reduction in our standard of living. And you look at the millennials and they get that. They really get that. And, and it's part of what they're struggling with. Now, here's how we're not helping them, but here's how we should help them and help ourselves. People will take, as if they're starving for meaning, they will not take any significant reduction in their standard of living, their subjective well-being. They won't. But If you give people a reliable place in which they can be nourished and cultivate wisdom and meaning, they will 
allow a significant reduction in their subjective well-being, their standard of living. Here's obvious proof for this. People have children. You have a child, your finances crash, your health crashes, your relationship to your significant other crashes, you're not sleeping well, you're not, uh, you're not eating properly, you're getting sick all the time. Why do you do this? You ask people, why do they have a child? They want to be connected to something beyond themselves, something that has a reality and a value other than their egocentric framework. People will sacrifice standard of living, subjective well-being, if they have good reason to believe that meaning will be given to them. So if we address the meaning crisis, we'll remove the fog, the way it strangles us and prevents us from having the wisdom and cognitive flexibility for dealing with the metacrisis, and we will empower people to make a sacrifice to their standard of living that's going to be needed to address the metacrisis. That is brilliant. That is beautifully said. I I very much agree. And I've never thought about it that way. I have to say, this idea that I know this on a maybe clinical level, that happiness doesn't get you there, right? You need meaning. But really, meaning is what sustains you. Meaning is what gets you through hardships. And on a grander scale, collectively, if we have more meaning, we're able to you know, to collectively evolve in a direction that that's healthier for, for everyone, in yes. a sense. Yes. Wonderful. John, thank you. This has been brilliant. It's such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was wonderful, Ronnie. And the caliber of your questions was impressive. If you ever want to talk again, I'd be happy to come on your show. It was really a pleasure. I would love to. I would love to. For everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in to The Bigger Picture. I hope you found this conversation interesting. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. My name is Roni Firon. This is The Bigger Picture. And thank you for listening. Till next time.